0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ.
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's a delight to see you here on what is usually small attendance Sunday in the fall with everything that's going on, OU Texas, ACL. It's a four-day weekend for many kids. I heard 900,000 people would be flying through the Austin airport this weekend, and none of them are going to be here at church. So thank you <laughs> for being here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that we would hide it deeply in our hearts We might know you and love you and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the halfway point in a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. As we've told you, the first three pertain to God, the second three to us. And the break between these two sets is easily seen because of the phrase here, on earth as it is in heaven. This phrase is meant to modify or to connect with those first three petitions, each of them. So hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven, and thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And today, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that mean? And what would it mean for us if we were to pray it and to truly mean it? At the very least, it has something to do with giving up control, which I'm experiencing in acute ways this fall. Some of you might be thinking, well, it's because of the capital campaign. This is a capital campaign sermon series, and that is true. And this capital campaign, as I've told you, is not something that we can control or achieve in our own strength. The Lord is going to have to do something in us in order to motivate us to give sacrificially to it. To, he's probably going to have to motivate us to see his unseen and ultimate beauty in ways that we, that we would long to see it even more fully in the building of a sanctuary, which in part would communicate his beauty to us in ways that we only experience in part now. And so yes, he's going to have to do something. And we are in one sense giving up control to him to see if this indeed is what he has for us. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I've given up control in our home because our family got a puppy over a month or so ago. His name is Bear. He's a mini Aussie doodle which is so incredibly embarrassing of a description because anything with "mini" and Doodle in the title doesn't qualify as a dog where I grew up. And I've got him right here in my pulpit. Just kidding. Some of you really wished <laughs> that I had a puppy in the pulpit. And I thought about it. I thought about bringing him out and auctioning him off for the campaign for $30 million. Don't tell my wife I said that because he's her college children replacement therapy and he's, he's my means of sanctification right now, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'm considering renaming him Thorn and moving on from Bear because anytime I take him out, he thinks I'm the fun family guy, and I take him out to go to the bathroom, and he just looks at me. He's like, I'm not going to the bathroom, but we're going to play chase, and he runs away, and I look like Rocky in Rocky One, chasing that chicken. Do you remember that? I'm 48 years old. I can't catch, or almost 40. I can't catch a four-month-old puppy. This happened to me multiple times. So this is what it's like in some ways for us to lose control. And what if this petition is meaning that? What if that is what this petition is about in part? And so two points this morning, the links in the prayer and the paradox of our faith. First of all, the links in the prayer. I've already mentioned one. On earth as it is in heaven, this phrase, both distinguishes between these two sets of petitions, but also connects them. And we're still talking about heaven this week. We're still talking about what it means for God's name and kingdom and will to be exerted in our lives. And next week, we'll move on to earth and to us and our bread and debts and our temptations. But as I've emphasized, we have to remember the order. The order is of the utmost importance. We have to begin with heaven before we begin to think about or to worry about earth, especially in our prayers. Because if we begin, if we don't begin with praise, and then we dive immediately into our petitions, then probably what's gonna be most hallowed in our hearts are our needs and our hurts and our losses and those of others around us. And, and to the part that we've come to today, our will very likely we'll be elevated to a similar level or a similar importance in our lives of God's will, and maybe even above it. And we'll begin to imagine that God's will is our will or that God's job is to bend his will to our will. So we have to begin with praise. We have to begin with heaven. If in talking to God, we, we always aim for earth, we'll never hit heaven. That's true in any aspect of our life. And if you only talk to God about yourself, uh, you'll never fully be talking to God Praise puts all of our petitions, whatever they may be, in the right perspective before we even begin to pray them. So, if in your life right now, if things are going sideways, if your life is a complete wreck, even, especially you, especially now, begin with praise. And by the time you get around praying for those very real needs that you have, those petitions will be different because you will be different, your hearts will be different. They'll be softened, which leads us to another link. And that is the link between God's kingdom and God's will. Uh, They're clearly connected, logically connected, because a king always has a will. And if we're going to embrace this king's will in our hearts, our hearts have to be changed. They have to be softened. Because let's be perfectly honest with ourselves this morning. And that is this part of the prayer, this of all the six petitions, this is the worst one for us. This is our worst nightmare because we're modern Western people and we don't have kings. In fact, we don't even want our leaders to have a will of their own unless that will conforms to ours. Slogans like the will of the people, it's so deeply imbued in our social conscience. And that's what it is for us to be Western democratic people. But then there's the modern part of us. And as modern people, we believe that we ought to have a good and relatively easy and comfortable life. In fact, We believe that somehow we deserve it. That's our base expectation, our baseline expectation for this life, not difficulty and loss or pain or sadness. In fact, when we see people going through extreme struggles along those lines, we think, well, they're the exception that proves the rule that life is meant to go smoothly and easily and comfortably and most oftentimes be good or maybe even great. And we do so because here's the kicker. And that is, we believe that we think we're in control of our own lives and that we ought to be. And no people in the history of the world ever thought that before us. And in fact, most people around the world still to this day don't believe this. Jesus certainly didn't believe this. He never taught that. He taught that we need a king He emphatically said, I came in order to be king and to wrestle and arrest control from the chaos and the brokenness and the evil of this world and our lives and our own hearts. And that's what it means to rule. By definition, a king rules. A king is in control and his will is his control. Again, I think it's our worst nightmare. Time Magazine published an article this week. Maybe you all saw it. Some people sent it to me. It's called The Man Who Thinks He Can Live Forever. Did you see this article? It's about this man named Byron, or Brian rather, Johnson. He's a 46-year-old centimillionaire. Hundreds of millions of dollars to his name. And he spent the last three years in his life devoted to one single purpose, and that is not dying. He's developed what he calls a life extension system called Blueprint, which he submits every single decision about his life to a team of doctors various technologies and computer algorithms in order to sharply reduce his biological age. And he has to some degree. He says he has the bones of a 30-year-old and the heart of a 37-year-old, but he takes 111 pills per day. And he wears this baseball cap around all the time that shoots red light into his scalp. And he collects his own stool samples, which sounds really awesome. And this is what the article says. He considers, and I quote, any act that accelerates aging, like eating a cookie, to be an act of violence, which makes us the most violent church in the world because the amount of donuts that we go through (laughs) week in, week out. But it is a fascinating article. And I mentioned it to you because Brian Johnson is us. He is Western, modern, secularism taken to the nth degree. He is extreme, but he is also representative because like him, we think we're in control or we think at least we ought to be. And I always ask you this, if, if that's true, then what do we conceive of as sin? What really is sin? All too often, we think that it's just breaking the rules, not doing what we're supposed to do, not what, doing what God has said is good or doing that which is bad and unleashing harm upon ourselves and others. And it is that it is rule breaking, but it's so, so much more. It's a spiritual power, an alien spiritual power that we unleashed upon our world and upon us. And it drives us, it dwells within us and drives us to grasp for and to demand control. Reread Genesis 3 through that framework and wonder what it is that, that Adam and Eve, there with the serpent, see and delight in that fruit. When the scriptures say it's delight to their eyes, what they saw, what that What that longing was, was for the power that belongs to God, because that's what sin wants. It wants the power of God to control, to rule. And if that is sin, then what is anxiety? Because Jesus goes on to talk at length about anxiety. I talked about it at length last week in my sermon, because Jesus goes on right after the Lord's prayer and begins to speak about anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about your life, about about money, first of all, then what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, or any of the pleasure that's derived from those. So what is it? Tim Keller, his definition is, anxiety is the desire to control that which we can't, but believe that we should. And that's when we feel anxiety in between that gap there. That's why I printed Psalm 112 for you. I actually didn't print it for you. I thought that I printed it for you. That's why I read it at the beginning of the service, and none of y'all responded. But Psalm 112, if you had had it and read it, this is what you would have read. It's talking about the blessed person who knows and fears God. And it says, he is not afraid of bad news. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And every time I read that, I think that's not me. And I wonder, why is that not me? Why is that not us? Why when the doctor comes into the exam room with the bad news, or the boss comes into the office with bad news, or our spouse calls us with bad news? Do we feel and experience what we call anxiety? Blood beginning to pump and rush through our bodies, our mind racing, anger rising in us, words flying out of our mouths that we have no control over. Why? Because that crisis reveals the illusion that we've always been living under. And that illusion is that we're in control. And we feel anxiety because for the first time for a while we feel out of control, but that's our reality and it always has been. We've always been vulnerable in this world. We've never been the ones keeping our eyes going, our lives going. It's always been an illusion. It's always been a lie. And it makes us anxious because we disdain and disbelieve the undeniable fact that we are totally dependent upon the supporting power of God for our lives. And we always will be. It's why thy will be done is our worst nightmare, but also our greatest need. And some of you are not Christians you're here today with a spouse who is a Christian or a friend who's a Christian, or maybe you're just curious, maybe you're watching online, you're just curious about the faith. And this sounds so very, very foreign to you. And, and you at times have said, I would like to believe. I wish that I could, but I just have too many doubts about the scriptures and even about what it says about Jesus. And I agree with you. I both agree with you and disagree with you because you do have many doubts about the scriptures and about Jesus, but you also have far too few doubts about yourself because there's really only two doctrines upon which we can base our lives. And that is either God is competent and deserves to to lead and to rule our lives, or we are, we're competent and we're deserved. And back to Tim Keller, he so famously always said this. He always said to say, I can't believe I just can't believe, and it isn't a fair and fully honest way to describe unbelief. Because our real problem is that we refuse to doubt ourselves. We believe that we're competent to lead and to run our own lives. And that's true of all of us at sometimes, but some of you are doubling down on it. You're doubling down on your word and your will and your wisdom. And you want to talk about an act of blind faith. So consider that your greatest doubts are misplaced and that you should more greatly doubt yourself and your competency to run your own life. So don't just say, I, I just can't believe. Be honest and say, no, no, no. I refuse to doubt myself. I refuse to give up my will. And until you do, you will always be afraid of bad news. We all are at some point in some ways, but you especially will always be afraid of bad news and angered by it and overwhelmed by it and anxious and your heart will never be firm. It'll be hard, but it'll never be firm. And those are the links or a couple of them here in this passage. But there's one more and it leads us to point two. And that is the paradox of the faith. And this link is the last one here is the one between God's will and our daily bread. And more will be said about our daily bread next week. But let me just say this. And that is, you will never know what your daily bread actually is, what your true needs are, until you begin to submit your life and know and want what God's will is, because they inform one another and they amplify one another. And here's how especially. And that is, there are two senses, two interlocking meanings for what God's will is. And they are his revealed will and his secret will. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, I didn't print it for you, but listen, in, in that one verse, you find them both. It says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things, his secret will, it belongs to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So hopefully you heard those two senses. The first is the secret things. And that's the unfolding of our lives. It's the unfolding of human history and everything in it. All that is good, all that is bad, all that is joyful and delightful, all that is catastrophic. And we don't have control over them. They don't belong to us. We don't know them. We can't predict them. We can't avoid them, but they belong to God. He not only knows them, he rules over them. And he bends everything, everything in this life, everything in this world, everything in your life. He bends it all to good In fact, there's this passage, Romans 8.28, which is just representative of what the scriptures say across the board. And it's a well-known passage and I'm about to read it, but don't ever say it to someone who's in a new crisis. Never do that to anyone. But also always remind yourself of what it says before that crisis hits. And it's simply this, that God causes all things, all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And story after story after story in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike all depict this truth so very powerfully. All of Genesis in one sense is summed up in that verse, including the story of Jacob, which I'll get to in a second. It is the story of Joseph, which ends Genesis. It's the story of Jesus. Because think about it, more so than any other time, God caused all things to work together for good in Jesus's life and particularly at his cross, all things. The worst of things, the most evil of things to work together for good. The cross was the secret thing of God that became the greatest of things revealed. And that is the revealed will of God. This is the second sense. And that is what we find in God's word that we're to know and to believe and to do from his word. And when we pray, thy will be done, we're praying both. We're praying for his secret will and his revealed will. We're praying to by his grace, to submit to that which comes into our lives, whatever it may be, and to continue to follow him in and through it all. And we're also asking that his word be that which we truly believe and obey and do and follow and rely upon. We're praying for both. They're interconnected. And it's a significant part of the paradox of our faith. And here's how, especially. And that is, it's all too often when God's secret will for us when it includes things of severe mercies and difficulties, it's then that our faith in his revealed will and in his word grows. That's what the apostle Peter is talking about in the passage that I printed for you here in First Peter. He says, in this you rejoice. And this is just the basic gospel of Jesus. The basic good news. Son of God, God in human form, born of a woman, lived a sinless life, but became sin for us on the cross. Rose raised again in order that he might transform every aspect of our life and forgive us of everything in our lives. And he says, you rejoice in this, in this revealed will, in this that you have heard, even if now you are grieved by various trials, various things according to God's secret will, various things that you couldn't have imagined and couldn't have predicted. You're grieved by them. And that word grieved is too weak of a word in English to translate the word that's used in Greek, we should probably better say agonized. And some of you are in agony right now. Some of you know, especially what that is. It's this word that's most often used in relation to childbirth. And as we all know, in childbirth, it's extreme pain and extreme exertion, mental and physical and emotional, and it is suffering, but it leads to new life. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying all too often, it is our suffering that leads to new life and to a deepening of our faith and our obedience and even our joy. And he says it's necessary. And he compares the Christian life to smelting. Do You know the word smelting, you know what smelting is? It's this process of purifying gold. And he, he mentions it here. He mentions fire because what has to happen when gold is purified, it's got to be put into a furnace. It's incredibly hot. And it's gotta be heated and heated and heated until the gold begins to liquefy to some degree and all the impurities rise to the surface. And then they skim the impurities off of it. And then they cool it down and they heat it up again. And the impurities rise to the surface again and they skim it off again and again. And Peter says, that's the Christian life. That's the paradox. That through that, the genuineness of our faith the beauty, the strength. He even says the glory of our faith in God's revealed will, it is accomplished through his secret will, especially those severe mercies and difficulties. Do you know the phrase severe, or severe mercies? Do you know who coined it or who at least made it famous? This woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Did somebody say it? Did somebody get it? Elizabeth Elliot. She said this one time, she wrote this, God never withholds from his children that which his love and wisdom called good. God's refusals are always merciful. Severe mercies at times, but mercy's all the same. God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something better. And do you know her story? She lost her first husband, famous missionary Jim Elliott, When he was a missionary in Ecuador in the 1950s, he was killed by this Amazonian tribe that he was trying to minister to. And then Elizabeth Elliott with her infant daughter stayed in Ecuador, ministering to the same people that killed her husband. And she did so for years. And then she moved back to the U.S. and she married again. But her second husband died just four years after they were married. And she spent the rest of her life fighting with loneliness and struggling with loneliness and wrestling with God for answers over why she not only lost one husband, but both husbands. And there was a new biography that was released just a couple of weeks ago on the latter aspects of her life. And she says in there very, very clearly that this was something that he never fully gave, these answers to why. And she wrestled with him, much like Jacob here in our Old Testament reading. This is one of the strangest stories in the Bible but I think it's a story about us learning to pray, thy will be done. And maybe you know his story. Jacobs was a man of selfish ambition and vain conceit, as Paul says in Philippians 2. He was full of self-pity, never happy with his life in the way that it was going, and always lying and always hiding and always cheating in order to try and get what he wanted, but never getting what he wanted. He didn't get his father's approval. He didn't get the wife that he wanted. He didn't get to live where he wanted. He didn't get the career that he wanted. And he was always fighting with his father, with his brother, with his uncle, and always miserable and always hard. Never firm, but always hard. Until this night here in Genesis 32, where out of the middle of the night in the darkness, in the middle of the desert, this mysterious person all of a sudden appears and ambushes Jacob and assaults him. They begin to wrestle all night. And hours go by until at some point, Jacob realizes the unimaginable and that is that this mysterious assailant is God. And then he must have thought, now's my chance. Finally, finally, I can get what I want. Finally, I can pin God down and force God to do what I've always wanted him to do. And he had to think that because that's what we think. That's the way that we all too often think about not only our relationship with God, but prayer, that we're gonna pin God down and get him to do what we want. But then right before dawn, God reaches out and just touches Jacob's hip. He doesn't hit it, he doesn't kick it, he doesn't twist it or bite it or clawed or land on it, he just touches it. And Jacob's hip is, is dislocated and he's permanently disabled just by a touch. And in that moment, Jacob realizes something quite terrifying. And that is God has been holding back. Not even a fraction of his power has been exerted here but he also doesn't let go. And he asks God to bless him after he gets touched. And what does he mean? What is he he asking for? What is he saying that he wants here when he says, bless me? Well, for the first time in his life, he's not asking for something from God, but he's simply asking for God. Here, he, he finally realizes what life is all about. And it's not getting things from God, but, but getting God himself. And this is what he's truly always wanted and what he's ultimately needed. And God changes his name. He changes it from Jacob to Israel, which means strives with God or wrestles with God and wins. In verse 28, God says, you've prevailed against me, that you've won. You've won the wrestling match. He didn't win the wrestling match. He didn't overcome God's will or strength or ways or demands, he lost. But that's the paradox. It's the paradox of being in a relationship with God and of our faith. And that is in losing, we actually win. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 16. He says, deny yourself, lose your life, die to yourself, die to your will, and you will live. But indulge yourself keep your word, keep your ways, exert your will, bend everyone and everything to your will and you will die. And that is the paradox. It's completely contrary to our world's wisdom because the kingdom of God is our broken, fallen, sin-darkened world turned upside down. And Jesus came to establish his kingdom by doing what? By hallowing his father's name and by praying this very prayer. Praying thy will be done. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. You know, he prayed it. The garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was executed, there he prayed, your will be done. And then he went to his own death for our forgiveness and acceptance with God and for an entirely new world to be given birth and for a new power to dwell within us that we might live happily, joyfully, willingly under his rule and his protection and his guidance and his grace. He prayed this prayer for you that you might pray it now. And you have to pray it. You must pray it in order to truly live. And as I close, listen to the last words of C.S. Lewis's most famous book, Mere Christianity. I figure if this is the way he ends his book, it's probably the way that I should end my sermon. So here, this is what he says. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death death of your own ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay but look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else will be thrown in. That's what he means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. Hold nothing back, keep nothing back. Pray this prayer and you will live. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that somehow by your grace, because of Jesus, we would indeed pray this prayer, and we would truly mean it, and that you would show us in the praying of this prayer, we meet you, we find you, we gain you, and by faith, we are, we are given all things in and through your Son, for we pray in his name. Amen.